passkeys are the next step in the evolution of password managers. You can see that users between 18 and 24 are actually using TikTok and Instagram to Google stuff. To de-medicalize death through technology. Hi and welcome to episode 42 of Tech Review. Every week we gather to discuss the hottest topics in technology, innovation and social media. And on camera 4 today we have Chris. On camera 3 we have Vincent. On camera 1, hi, this is me, I am Tarek. Tech Review is a collaboration of Ideas Engineering, Free Tech Academy and Update.com. You can watch all episodes on YouTube, but if you prefer to just listen to our beautiful voices while working out, driving a car or flying through space, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and all major podcast platforms. So, what happened today? I just reloaded my dashboard and it says we will start with me <laughs> one question before yes. we start what happened to camera two why do we have camera four three and one where is camera two yeah to be honest i was just too lazy it was pre-configured and camera two <laughs> sorry man <laughs> on, on camera two this would have been henrike <laughs> and usually i uh, switch the camera positions when she's not there and re relocate everything but i was uh, no let's not say too lazy let's say too busy i had too much stuff to do and so i thought uh yeah okay the the total number of people is, is okay and camera two is just offline so uh hi henrike <laughs> But let's start with uh, my first article, which says, an article from Ars Technica. It says, RIP passwords, pass key support rollout uh, to Chrome stable. And this is super, super interesting. Or let's say I find it super, super interesting. Uh, because pass keys are the next step in the evolution of password managers. Pass keys use the WebAuth N standard to generate a public-private key pair, just like SSH. Yeah, we already know this and are familiar with this. And while passwords can be used insecurely with short text strings, um, and they are shared across many sites, for example, a passkey is always enforced to be unique in content and length. Uh, passkeys essentially require a portable device, like your smartphone, even if you're logging into a stationary PC. But it's like the second authentication uh, uh, yeah, thing that, that you're using. Um, the first time you set up a device, uh, you'll need to verify that your authentic device is in close proximity what, to whatever you're signing into. And this proximity check usually happens over Bluetooth as we are using them um, in the COVID proximity apps. And uh, soon, um, passkeys will be supported on iOS and Android and Chrome OS, but not Windows or Linux or Chrome, uh, or Chrome OS. Yeah. No, they will be supported for Chrome OS, but in Windows, Chrome I, think, OS, yeah. I, I think in Windows, it's just, uh, um, yeah, I have to check again. I think in Windows, it's just uh, Windows 11. It's not supported on Windows 10, which is a problem because there are far more users on Windows 10 than uh, 11 right now. Um, and this, this pass keys thing that is going to utilize the inbuilt key store. Um, that's why it is important on which uh, operating system you are on. And this keychain um, will use the Google Password Manager um, or a third-party app um, on Android. And on Windows, it's this Hello system, uh, for uh, the, the Windows Hello system. And um, some of these platforms uh, have then the capability of even syncing these keys across devices. Uh, some do not. It depends on, on the operating system um, or the third-party app. 
Um, and so far, it is uh, not supported by Android yet, um, but Google is working on that. And so it is super, super uh, interesting because as you, I'm not sure if you ever thought about how passwords on websites are are working. You have this input field, which is re uh, requesting a text input and you're typing something in. And this is then your way of authenticating against this, this website. And using a password manager, it's basically using JavaScript to copy and paste something from their database into this input field for human beings and then send this form simulating that you have typed something in there and so this is a super hacky way to automate um this this way of authentication and now with um with, with this new uh, pass key system we finally use a form of authentication which bypasses this um, antique manual password input field and so far of course it's just experimental and it's not widely rolled out yet but i am super super confident that this will be a new standard at some point of time that you will be able to authenticate by using your like uh, <laughs> third-party device in your pocket um, which then uh, shows as as this uh, second uh, factor that you are in close proximity and then it will access your your pass key storage and authenticate against the service yeah, and so it's, it's super interesting to see that Google is now rolling out this first phase because then we will go into this uh, process of uh, seeing it in the next years being uh, supported by more operating systems. Vincent. Okay. Uh, can you just quickly further elaborate on how does that work with a uh, mobile device where I log into a mobile device? So when I'm thinking right now about something, yeah, I mean, I think about something like Apple Keychain, where I have a code that I usually put into, or Microsoft, which is more going to the, um, just like Google does, by the mm -hmm. way, with the authentication, authenticator app, yeah. where I just press on authenticate, and then depends on the third-party app, I have to enter another code or I don't. Um, so how does that work with that? So I sign in with my phone, and I authenticate with my phone. That doesn't make a lot of sense. You are right. Um, this is a very, very good question, um, and I can't directly answer it, because on the one hand, um, if your phone is aware that it is a phone, then you could say uh, having it with you is already like the proof that you are not hacked from somewhere uh, far. But using it as a second factor authentication, you need like this independent second factor. So uh, before I tell a lie and start guessing uh i i'm not sure if um if this already works because when i think of it i mean i can see that for important apps i'm very happy that it's there so apps that contain personal information i always i'm very happy about uh two-factor authentication um and i actually i know a lot of people at work uh for everybody who does not work at access springer where we work we use the microsoft 365 cloud and um, there we also use the Microsoft Authenticator to sign into these apps and I know a lot of people hate that because it requests your authentication a few times a week yeah. um, but I do have to say that since I have the Authenticator app um, that process is quite fun actually it's quite nice to see how how fast these systems work with each other I maybe I'm a nerd on this but I really <laughs> like that I can plus yes and then it signs in it is so crazy i actually turned the same functionality on my uh personal microsoft account so every time i sign into my xbox into my pc and anything else or i saw that microsoft is rolling out ssl support on a lot of additional websites it's crazy i use the authenticator app and not the password app anyways doesn't matter what i want to say is um that besides those apps 
it's really annoying. I really hate two-factor authentication. And so I would maybe disagree with you because when I just sign into, say, I don't know, the website of my theater I go to to watch movies, I really don't need a third-party device to just log in, to yeah. then log in again on my PayPal to then buy tickets. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I just try to skim through the text to find um, to find an answer. And there are like these uh, hints that you don't require a phone, but only any portable device. So it might also be a tablet. Um, and maybe if you're using the phone with a LIDAR scanner, may maybe your face um, as biometric scan would be okay, the, well, the that's second techie. authentication. Wow. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. but, but as I said, um, I, I'm not 100% sure this is what, what I spontaneously uh, interpret. But there's this demo site at passkey.io. I did not re uh, register yet. I did not try it out yet. But I'm super interested in uh, in trying it and uh, being like a f early adopter on this, even though um, I'm also not sure if um, how far this is downwards compatible if it's ha having like this. If your device or the service does not support this, you are still able to enter like a um, like an old school password or something because as we see here there's not a hundred percent support yet and so there will be cases where you won't be able to authenticate if you're a hundred percent depending on this new system actually quite funny because i mean when you look at percentages worldwide it's not like there is not a hundred percent support for it but actually there's like i don't know how many like i would argue 20 percent support in all systems mm. because i mean since we all act like Apple is reinventing the wheel, but Microsoft has like the lion's share of the computer market, uh, software market, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, I mean, we act like Microsoft is, is slow with this, even though this is a niche development compared to what Microsoft has with Windows. Right. So I really like the perspective. <laughs> okay. And now, this. And now let's continue with Vincent and young users, <laughs> as I see in the headline. Yes, it's Vincent and young users. That's, <laughs> that's what it's all about. Uh, I, I'm not young, so uh, yeah, users are. <laughs> no, um, basically, this is about TikTok, and it's about uh, something that I brought in the last tech review. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. It's about something, the last tech review I brought. It's about Amazon and shopping, and it's about how um young users when you scroll down you see a chart from the latest Reuters report you can see that users between 18 and 24 are actually using TikTok and Instagram to Google stuff and I know how weird that sounds <laughs> let me rephrase to search for stuff yeah. um but we can see that there is a significant trend um and it's interesting because it's mainly for shopping mainly for for restaurants tips around I don't know say city when you're doing a trip or anything like that um and yeah, it's a very impressive to see um, how how those numbers changed. And uh, specifically interesting for us is that this also develops in the field of news. Um, and that brings a few questions with us. The second chart is going into that direction. We can see that um, classic journalistic brands, publishers, so to say, and journalists themselves are 
by far not as interesting to users on those platforms than uh, internet personalities are. And that comes with a lot of flaws, obviously, because we can ensure, we cannot ensure that the information they're sharing is right. Um, but then again, we could also argue, uh, and I mean, this is something I actively work on, obviously, uh, in my role. Um, we could also say that it is our role as a traditional publisher to go where the market is going to develop or produce or whatever you want to call it um, news media legitimate news media where the market is going legitimacy I don't know how to say that. <laughs> yeah anyways um, yeah I thought it was very interesting and uh, we can see that trend going on and on and on and so I think this is one more wake-up call for every traditional publisher that um yeah please become an internet personality <laughs> asap <laughs> yeah it's a long article but that's but what it says basically yeah yeah but i i totally agree with what you said in the beginning that uh this trend is obvious and as we see um the shopping market for example also moving towards this for you page like swiping experience and uh, people get more and more used to this kind of content. I could absolutely imagine um, that also in the news market, this trend will start to impact. And I, I know that people, th there are a lot, of, a lot of people who are already um, consuming their news completely from their news feed, being it the news feed from their Facebook page or on Instagram or TikTok or wherever. Um, and it is already served in this way. Yeah, and I can't imagine that this trend will completely pass by the news industry. There, there will be a change, definitely. Yeah, but it's not that easy, right? So, <laughs> sure. uh, as Vincent said, you need like really internet personalities. And that's really, um, yeah, you, you just don't grow those people in your garden. So it's... <laughs> And that's, that's, that's totally different to the business which we had so far, right? So we, you had like journalists and they were like sitting in their um, editorial rooms and then they had research and then they were writing a nice article based on facts and everything. But um, it's not necessarily the person who actually created this quality piece of news, right? And then had been published. And uh, this is a totally different precondition, which we now see in TikTok, because there the news might might not be of that quality, but the person has some kind of um, uh, attraction uh, to those uh, kids mostly, right? Or to, to Gen Z mainly. And um, so that is something, the value is different to what we have like in, uh, in the conventional news media sector. Um, and as I said, the second thing is that you, it's difficult to, to grow up those people. Um, so I don't think that that is an, a problem which can be easily solved. Yeah, we, we should go where the market is, but with whom and with what? So there is a totally new concept needed. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Vincent, no, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Okay. I just wanted to say that um, we, we also did some experiments with um, how to move news into TikTok, for example, or this kind of live feed. And what I see on TikTok, for example, they, they mix up their uh, static videos and live content. And so while you're swiping through the, uh, the For You page, there's also this teaser for live content. And I could imagine, for example, if it's regarding news, that you produce either short um, teaser videos for your articles and then if you're interested you're 
like uh, tapping on it and jump into the, the complete news article or the complete feed of this thing that you want to see um, or actually having um, this this feature where you see snippets from let's say the the news broadcast yeah as a live feed on on the social platform and then you can decide to swipe further yeah, as you did in the past with your remote control and, and the tv when you were uh, zapping through it um, but i can absolutely imagine that this might be the new way of uh, serving news. I personally, I use uh, the Google News app, and this one is learning my behavior of uh, what uh, what kind of news headlines I prefer, and so it serves me more of this kind. And so I trained this news app to serve me exactly what I want to see. And so I could imagine that a, a TikTok feed-style news app that learns my behavior and learns what kind of news articles are interesting for me um, starts serving me more of this kind. Yeah? So the swiping, consuming behavior for news, I think it is imaginable. But Vincent, um, you want to say something? No, I wanted to say something very similar. I also wanted to mention without spoiling too much about our other lives outside of the tech review world that uh, especially you and I, we know uh, <laughs> how hard it is to bring news to social media platforms. And um, I want to say that um, Chris is absolutely right. Uh, it is difficult because I can see that the way journalists are right now working is not the way of the future, right? You can, you're not only um, you're not only writing content anymore. I'm not only in the terms of this is the one way of content. Uh, you need to be a personality, right? You need to you need to perform also as an entertainer. And that, I think, is, is the difficult part. Um, and this is why we see so many creators individually and not a brand or a lot of brands succeeding with a creator model because you need to have that one, that one way of, 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 of presenting. And obviously, some individuals would do that. Maybe we're lucky and they're with us or another publisher. Then we're unlucky. But um, it is very unlikely that we just set out to be the number one creators and this will happen. So the question is, do we need to rethink maybe our newsroom in order to serve individuals as well as possible so that in the end, we have a lot of newsroom members contributing but not being visible? And um, also a fun idea, just saying it, would be to broadcast our TV stations. I mean, we own two TV stations. Maybe we should broadcast them on a 24-7 <laughs> live just to see what happens. I can see, I mean, I, we would need to transfer everything into a vertical format. So this is quite hell uh, for video editing. But um, I could see this performing. I could see that. I mean, this would be a crazy endeavor, but it, yes. And I... Yeah, I mean, at least trying, right? Um, making this experiment and see what is going to happen. If nobody's interested in this or this format is not convertible in this way, okay, then we, we know it. Yeah? But as long as we don't test it, we won't know. I mean, we could easily yeah. set this up, Tarek, by the way. <laughs> Definitely, we could. absolutely. I mean, the, the, we have the free, the free TV lives. Uh, we have the access to um, direct streaming via TikTok verified accounts. Technically, <laughs> we could we could just try it and see what happens. Yeah, it's crazy that we are 
actually not limited by the technical hurdles, but by <laughs> legal and organizational uh, red flags, right? Uh, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. From the t technical point of view, we can start tomorrow. <laughs> Everything's there. Yeah. But interesting question that uh, actually brings up also regarding uh, the implica implications that has, right? Like, for instance, thinking about the öffentlich-rechtlichen uh, news media services, right? So if, if like the older generations, the older target group um, is more or less um, fading away, so to say, and being replaced by newer target groups, especially coming from Gen Z, who has a totally different um, behavior in the consumption of news, like as you describe it, um, then the question should be legitimate and even more legitimate than it is already now. How useful is um, then the öffentlich-rechtliche news media um, anstalt? And, and uh, ich mein, I mean, there's so much money getting in there and you're being forced to pay that. Um, but the influence they have and the people they reach, they're getting less and less and less. So um, also here, one should be thinking about a totally different concept. On the other hand, I to understand that from the government perspective, that is hell for instance, uh, for, for, um, because like with öffentlich-rechtliche, uh, like you have two or three of those uh, TV stations and then that's it, right? So you can, I don't want to say you can control them, but you can, <laughs> but you can actually, um, you have, they have their, their order, if you want it that way to, 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 to send out and to publish um, the uh, official uh, governmental uh, news um, also point of view and stuff. But then on the other hand, if you have like um, an army of influencers there, you definitely cannot control those guys, right? So everybody is talking whatever they want to talk about. So what does that mean? What implications does that have? What does it mean for democracy? Is that even maybe even more democratic than what we have now, where you have just like two or three stations? If you have like three or four thousand stations on the other hand you're true so you cannot uh, be sure that people always talk about facts maybe they just like fake news right so you, you cannot actually control that and um, the next person maybe is more about uh, it's their own personality and not about the things they are talking about like the correct correct news which they actually um, bring into into society so there are so many aspects which you really have to think about and which are very very diff difficult to control so that might be might be interesting to see what what happens in the future there yeah and as i said for us it means we have to have to definitely change our concept so we have to grow more personalities um as news moderators and and uh, create influencers so to say as a news media station and um a journalist nowadays is definitely something um different than it will be in let's say 10 years time <laughs> yeah absolutely we will keep a close eye on this and now this but now first let's jump to this messy moral ooh, this yes. messy morality <laughs> of letting ai make life and death decisions chris yeah again ai again decision-making AI, right? So like we have that very often, and, but uh, it's a topic I'm, I'm really into. And the more I read about it, the more I um, get to think about it, the, the more, um, yeah, it, um, it, it, it takes my, my interest. Um, this article actually is about a guy called Philip Nitschke. 
Um, he is with a non-profit organization called Exit International and uh, is running like 24 years now, or 25 years campaign actually to demedicalize death through technology. Right? So it's based in Switzerland. Um, because Switzerland is um, one of a, of a handful of countries actually that have legalized assisted suicide. And uh, Philip Nitschke has created this tool, which you can see here in the picture, um, a coffin-sized pot um, called the Sarko. And the idea here is that um, a person who has chosen actually to die is sealed inside the machine. And then um, the person has to answer three questions. Who are you? Where are you? And do you know what will happen when you press the button? Right? So it's about probably about the clearness uh, of the person's mind. And um, yeah, if that uh, is, is being answered correctly, then the circle will be filled with uh, nitrogen gas and uh, the person inside will pass out within one minute or so and uh, will die within around five minutes. So that's, that's a self-induced suicide. And so that's, yeah, that's a suicide in the end. And uh, now this is actually where the AI comes into the game to make it more, um, yeah, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the idea is that the AI, uh, the, the AI allows people also additionally, so to say, to perform a kind of uh, psychiatric test, self-test. Um, so to decide if you are really convinced to do of what you're currently about doing, if you really want to do that, if you really are prepared to take the last step, so to say. And if this result of this psychological test is positive, then the AI provides a four-digit code and you can activate the circle. Right? And um, again, we have handed over a little bit of, of a kind of decision to an AI. I'm, I'm not quite sure if it's, it's really difficult. I don't want to judge that. I just want to put that into the discussion. But again, we have something which has been handed over to an AI, right? Uh, in this case, a decision of uh, on life and death. And um, interesting, also in that article, a little bit further down, um, there was other aspects um, of also life and death questions that have been uh, handed over to AIs again. Um, and we've seen that during the pandemic and in the, in the first year, especially, um, where the uh, doctors and hospitals and so had to make decisions about who would re receive um, immediate care and who would not, right? And sometimes with the tragic consequences. So that is in the end um, a triage decision they had to, to make. And of course, also here, the question came up if algorithms, if AIs actually could be helping. And um, what we saw during the pandemic was that indeed there was a jump uh, on the demand for such technology in the first year of the pandemic and uh, that, that hospitals all around the world really bought such tools to assist with the triage thing. And um, yeah, I can understand the, the need and the demand and where the wish actually come from, comes from to have these systems. On the other hand, this development, of course, raises a bunch of ethical questions, right? Um, and there is no easy answer to that. Um, and I, questions might be, what kind of decision is really appropriate to give in the hands of an algorithm, right? Um, and, and how should these algorithms be built? And who, um, 
gets a say in how these algorithms will be developed, right? I mean, especially if you consider this black box aspect, which we have discussed before. So you cannot be sure that the AI really um, takes the right decision in there. Maybe you have this lottery win and you are one of those 10,000 people, the edge case, this one edge case, where the AI decides not the way a human would, but um, what if the AI decides against you in this triage situation, right? So, I mean, yeah, of course, um, the percentage is very low, but nonetheless, it's bad luck for you if you are the winner in this, so to say, um, lottery, right? And um, then we had these other uh, um, aspects which we have in AI systems nowadays, the discrimination aspect. Also here, I mean, what if the AI decides not on the facts, on the medical facts, but maybe on, on some aspects which are more based on discrimination. However, that discrimination might have been built into that, uh, into that algorithm. But we've seen that in the chatbots and so on. So you cannot be sure that it will not happen in such systems. And last but not least, of course, there might be also clear economical, political interests uh, of special parties who might be even building those systems. Um, who might give it a little kick in one or another direction for whatever reasons or for whatever interests that they have um, so that you can also not be sure if, if um, that system is not being um, biased. And I'm really highly doubtful if in questions like these, although it might be of great help on the one hand, it would be a very ethical good decision to put questions like these and decisions like these into the hands of an algorithm. Yeah, for me, it's um, like I said last week <laughs> when we discussed this topic. Uh, the, the, the big question for me is always not if the AI is capable of making perfect decisions, but if the AI is as at least as good or better than human beings and being... Um, like influenced or biased as a human doctor and um, having your triage be influenced and uh, saving like the wrong group of people might happen for you as a person. Uh, there we have this very specialized question and we have to bring the, the, the mass of patients to a certain order to save the people who are most likely to be uh, saved. And this is like a very medical question. The, the machine might be able to predict even more precise than a human doctor and quicker uh, which people to save. So in, in case of a triage, this might be very, very helpful simply because the AI might be better and also for the for the psychology of the doctors. I think th this must be like the worst thing for a doctor to make this decision who has to die and who could receive the risk of surviving, especially if this person then does not survive. The, the doctor will always ask themselves, did I make the right decision? And having this uh, made by an AI might help the patients and the doctors. And so I, I don't think that this might be uh, necessarily a bad thing. I think this, this might actually be a very, very valuable use case. And in the other scenario with a suicide booth, <laughs> I call it a suicide booth because it sounds exactly like Futurama and the suicide booths, if you know Futurama, the TV show. Um, there, again, the, the AI is not supposed to give therapy, right? It's, it's not like a doctor. It's a, like a quality gate to make sure that the person who wants to, uh, to die actually is 
capable of making this decision and actively is doing this decision. And again, it's like a very, very narrow use case where the AI can be trained um, precise enough to um, to replace a human person, a human being in this in this decision loop. Yeah, it's it's not the general AI that is supposed to give therapy to. Uh, talk this person out of suicidal thoughts or something like that. If the the assisted dying is legal and the machine has exactly this this mission and this um, this purpose of finding out if this person is clear minded enough to make this decision for itself for himself, um, then I think the AI should be capable of doing this very precise thing, replacing like a human doctor f for all medical care with an AI, I think there, this might be critical yeah? because there the AI is not general enough um, to do everything that a doctor is doing. But for these very, very sp specific use cases, I think those might actually be perfect use cases for the use of AI. This is my, my personal opinion. Yeah, so in both use cases, I'm actually missing the human factor, to be honest. The question is, do you need the human factor? I, I think removing the human factor in these uh, decisions might actually be uh, what we need uh, to make this process better. Coming back to um, the AI discussion we had in the last tech review, where in the end we asked ourselves, uh, or where, we, where one could ask, who does less mistakes? So maybe the human factor, therefore, is even more risky. And you can see that with very basic, I, I read one article about very basic studies where an AI obviously in the end selected a better method than even a very educated doctor. So maybe you don't yeah. need the human factor. I mean, absolutely. This is now where we are moving again in the, the philosophical discussion and this ethical discussion. There's this thought experiment of um, you have the choice of switching the, the tracks of a train and save 10 people who are uh, standing on, on the train tracks, but you have to sacrifice the one person that's standing on the other tracks. So you actively have to move the lever to uh, move the train to the other side. And you can be proud of yourself because you save 10 people by sacrificing one person, but you are personally responsible for killing this one person on the other tracks. Yeah? And so with the AI discussion, it's, it's kind of a similar thing. If we see the AI is capable of saving 10 times the people um, than the human doctor could, that's great. But what is what, what with the one person who dies an unnecessary death because the AI was doing some crazy thing that a person would never have done yeah? with autonomous driving? Maybe we, we save, we have 10 times fewer accidents with self-driving cars, but then one day the car just drives into like a wall because it thought it was sky or something like that. And you say, what? what is happening? This person could have lived, but at the same time we saved a hundred other people um, with the AI software. And this is this this moral dilemma that we are in, right? Okay, maybe some famous last words uh, <laughs> regarding AIs and perfection and uh, the human factor. I think it's, in the end, imperfection that makes us human. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nice and philosophical as long as we are not uh, responsible for deaths. <laughs> But you're totally right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for your contributions to Tech Review 42. As always, see you next week. Same time, same place. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye.
If you are hearing this message, you've listened to the entire episode. And for that, we here at Tech Review want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We hope this new episode was valuable for you. And if it was, please give us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you're listening to us right now. Share this episode with others who could also like it. Do you have a topic that you'd like to see covered in future episodes? Don't hesitate to tell us in the comments or on social media. We hope you'll be back for the next episode.